This is a special re-airing to celebrate the paperback release of Britt Bennett's The Vanishing Half, one of the most celebrated novels of 2020. I'm proud to have had it on the show. Britt Bennett deserves her acclaim. Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. From KCRW and KCRW.com, I'm Michael Silverblatt, and this is Bookworm. My guest today, Britt Bennett, is the talk of the literary world. Her book, The Vanishing Half, made its debut at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Now, like me, you may not think much of bestseller lists, but my big surprise when I picked it up is that it's a wonderful book. It's very enjoyable to read, and it's only Britt Bennett's second book. What was the originating idea for The Vanishing Half, Britt? Well, thanks for having me. Um, the, the book actually began with a conversation I had with my mother where she was telling me about this town she remembered hearing about from her childhood growing up in rural Louisiana. And it was a town where it was a community of, of light-skinned Black people that continued to intermarry within that community in hopes that their children would progressively get lighter from generation to generation. So it really struck me as a very strange and disturbing idea um, and also place and, of course, as a novelist, that immediately makes you think, oh, this is a setting for a novel. We get a very dramatic sense of that setting early in the book. And I'm going to ask Britt Bennett to read the section that describes the town. It has a great name. The name of the town is Mallard, and it's named after a duck. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. It was a strange town. Mallard named after the ring-necked ducks living in the rice fields and marshes. A town that, like any other, was more idea than place. The idea arrived to Alphonse de Sore in 1848. As he stood in the sugarcane fields he'd inherited from the father who'd once owned him. The father now dead, the now freed son wished to build something on those acres of land that would last for centuries to come. A town for men like him, who would never be accepted as white, but refused to be treated like Negroes. A third place. His mother, rest her soul, had hated his lightness. When he was a boy, she'd shoved him under the sun, begging him to darken. Maybe that's what made him first dream of the town. Lightness, like anything inherited at great cost, was a lonely gift. He'd married a mulatto even lighter than himself. She was pregnant then with their first child, and he imagined his children's children's children, lighter still, like a cup of coffee steadily diluted with cream, a more perfect Negro, each generation lighter than the one before. Soon others came. Soon idea and place became inseparable, and Mallard carried throughout the rest of St. Landry Parish. Colored people whispered about it, wondered about it. White people couldn't believe it even existed. When St. Catherine's was built in 1938, the diocese sent over a young priest from Dublin 
who arrived certain that he was lost. Didn't the bishop tell him that Mallard was a colored town? Or who were these people walking about? Fair and blonde and redheaded, the darkest ones no swarthier than a Greek? Was this who counted for colored in America, who whites wanted to keep separate? Well, how could they ever tell the difference? By the time the Veen twins were born, Alphonse de Sore was dead, long gone, but his great-great-great-granddaughters inherited his legacy, whether they wanted to or not. Even Desiree, who complained before every Founder's Day picnic, who rolled her eyes when the founder was mentioned in school, as if none of that business had anything to do with her. This would stick after the twins disappeared. How Desiree never wanted to be part of a town that was her birthright. How she felt that you could flick away history like shrugging a hand off your shoulder. You can escape a town, but you cannot escape blood. Somehow the Veen twins believed themselves capable of both. And yet, if Alphonse de Sor could have strolled through the town he'd once imagined, he would have been thrilled by the sight of his great-great-great-granddaughters. Twin girls, creamy skin, hazel eyes, wavy hair. He would have marveled at them. For the child to be a little more perfect than the parents, what could be more wonderful than that? That's Britt Bennett reading a section from the opening ten pages of her novel, The Vanishing Half. Now, tell me, this idea, the idea of this town that is designed to get whiter and whiter and to exile or expel those people who are violations of its aspiration toward whiteness. This is a horrifying idea, just as in Edward P. Jones's novel, The Known World, a town where freed black people own black slaves themselves. Tell me how do we get ideas as dangerous and strange as these? Well, yeah, I started, so when I started thinking about the book, I I read about similar communities to this that existed um, in Louisiana, these Creole communities of of fair-skinned Black people who believed very deeply that it was better to be light, who were suspicious of darker-skinned Black people and wanted to kind of insulate their community uh, against who they perceived as being outsiders, to me, the book was taking this idea of colorism and just pushing it to its extremes um, by locating it into this physical town and, and sort of pushing the extremes of that ideology to think about what it would look like if colorism is not just, you know, something that's abstract, if it's not just something that you think of as, as a, a preference or sort of a personal opinion about light skin being better than dark skin. What does it look like if this is something that is actually kind of instituted in a place And to the degree that the population is almost kind of genetically engineering it so that their children can can become lighter and lighter. The book does not follow the track that you'd expect. It's about how people escape from these restrictions in order to find themselves... Of the two twin sisters who are at the center of this novel, Desiree and Stella, one of them runs off to live a life as a completely white woman. Neither her husband nor her daughter 
Kennedy know that she is or was black, and the other, Desiree, finds the blackest man that she can and has a baby who is described in the opening pages of the book as blue-black, so black that it's almost purple, yes? Uh, yes, that's, that's how Jude is described. Now, identity in this book is fused with ideas about acting and lying. The daughter, Kennedy, wants to be an actress, not just an actress. She's going to be a white blonde in musical comedies and end up <laughs> in soap operas where she'll be remembered forever as being that blonde-haired woman. <laughs> Meanwhile, her sister has gone back home to her mother, and her mother looks right away and essentially says, that man, he beat you, didn't he? And yes, that man she married did beat her. It doesn't mean that any black man is going to beat a woman. It means, and this is where the book breaks open thrillingly, it means that this particular black woman is being seen very close up by an author, Britt Bennett, who establishes the possibilities that exist for these daughters in a Astonishingly rapid prose. Now, I want to know, will you attempt the answer to a question that can't be answered? How did you learn to write so deeply into the personality of your characters? <laughs> I mean, I appreciate that. I think that that's always what I aspire to as a writer, and I think that's what most writers I would think aspire to. Um, I think for me, a lot of it was just the, the types of books that I read were books that um, looked closely at characters and, and made you feel like you were engaging with a real person and, and not just a type. And I think for me with this story, I knew that because I wanted to think about identity, that it was really important that the characters not feel like metaphors or that they didn't feel like tropes. Um, even though I was engaging with certain tropes or I was engaging with, um, certain uh, familiar images um, as far as stories about passing and stories about um, identity within America. I knew that I was working within that, that form, um, but I wanted the characters to feel particular and I wanted them to feel unique. So for me, a lot of it just came down to thinking about these characters' specific lives, um, thinking about the things that they specifically want or the things that they care about or the things that they fear and trying, trying to write in, in that direction. As I'm reading more and more literature by black poets and black writers, I'm coming to understand that racism is a quality having to do with ignorance. And as I read The Vanishing Half, I realized that I was coming to understand the characters and that the book was redressing my ignorance. What do you feel 
knowing that you're having both ecstatic white readers, black readers, reviewers, and fellow novelists. Who was the book for? Is it for anyone in particular? Uh, I, you know, it feels great to, to see so many different types of people responding really warmly um, to the book. And, you know, obviously I'm always um, excited to see readers connecting to it, people saying that they couldn't put it down or that it helped them sort of uh, rediscover their attention span during quarantine and a time in which it's been hard for a lot of us to concentrate on anything beside the news. So that, that always means a lot to me. Um, I think I'm always writing, you know, I think of sort of writing towards and, and writing with my, my community. Uh, I was, I feel like I was really raised by black writers who did not write for white audiences. Um, and, and that's how I consider this work too, that I'm, I'm writing with and I'm writing to, and I'm writing toward my, my community. And because of that, it's, it's also exciting to see people outside of the community, outside of the country, outside of the language (laughs) to see people connecting to this book across language and region and country. That's been really thrilling to, to experience. I once had the honor of talking to Paul Marshall, the author of Brown Girl, Brown Stone, and someone, her agent, in fact, said to me, Michael, I see that your intentions are good, but Paul can talk about anything. You don't have to restrict your questions to the black world. Paul can tell you what she believes a novel is. Mm -hmm. In your case, Britt, what is a novel? I mean, that's a big question. You know, I think it, it can take so many different forms. Um, I think for me, what I'm looking for is, is a story about people. Um, I'm, I'm wanting to, I, I love novels that are about communities. Um, I, I love that kind of kaleidoscopic way of telling a story where you have all of these different characters and maybe this person seems really unimportant, but later you, you get to see through their perspective or they factor in the plot in some large way. So I think that that is what I'm looking for when I'm when I'm looking to read something. I'm looking for beautiful language. I'm looking for beautiful images and and an exciting voice. Somebody that you that you want to sit and pause while they while they tell you a story. Uh, but I'm also just looking for characters who who intrigue me and frustrate me. Um, characters who are complicated and and fascinating and and characters that I want to spend some time with. I'm talking to Britt Bennett, the author of The Vanishing Half, a marvelous book published by Riverhead Books. And I'm very grateful to Claire McGinnis for pointing the book out to me, you know. she. I asked her, what should I be reading now? And she said, The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. And she was absolutely right. I'm so happy to have read this book, and I'm afraid to say this thing that is a cliché of readers and book lovers, but I can't recommend it highly enough. (laughs) As the book proceeds, it brings in more and more contemporary life. So two of the characters have a friend named Barry, who's a drag queen, who performs in a club. They like to go to that club. We meet someone who seems to be a cowboy. 
He loves to dress in cowboy clothes, but he is in fact a woman. He's a transgender, and we're going to watch him make his way into the gender that means his life to him. And not only that, he's going to have an affair with one of our characters who we would not have expected would have chosen a transgender partner. Now, how did this happen? Well, I wanted, I knew that I wanted Jude to have a big sweeping love story um, in, in the book. And I just loved the character of Reese. Um, he grows up in a sort of conservative Southern community and, and escapes in order to, to reinvent himself and also to, um, to be able to actually be himself um, when, he, when he moves west and is able to finally be free to be himself. So I, you know, I wanted to write a love story between those two characters. And it felt like wanting to write a story about two people who love and respect each other and who see each other for who they are. Um, these two characters who have experienced um, a lot of shame and violence surrounding their bodies and them having to overcome that shame in order to, to build this relationship and sustain it over a period of years. And these characters... Most of them who fascinate us are the ones who escape, the ones who find themselves in a rut following the daily treadmill, are the people who won't escape. What kind of bravery does that require? I think it requires a lot of bravery to to be a different person. Um, I'm always thinking about these questions of reinvention. I think that you know, a, a lot of us have fantasies, I, I would think, of of going somewhere where nobody knows you and starting over or thinking about choices that you've made in your life and wanting to make different choices. Um, I think there's something, again, liberating about that, but also scary. And, and it can be daunting, particularly if you have people who knew you before who kind of insist on you being the way that they knew you and are resistant to the fact that you are a different person. So there are a lot of characters in this book that are engaging in this kind of push and pull between the person that they want to be and the person that, you know, their family wants them to be or their friends want them to be. And I think that that's something that I think a lot of us can kind of relate to existing within that tension ourselves. I'm Michael Silverblatt. You're listening to KCRW's Bookworm, and I'm talking with Britt Bennett about her marvelous novel, The Vanishing Half. We'll continue after this short break. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. This is a re-airing of a show from June 2020, Britt Bennett's The Vanishing Half, now available in paperback. I'm Michael Silverblatt. This is Bookworm, and I'm talking with Britt Bennett about her novel, The Vanishing Half, which, contrary to all expectation, 
Within a week of its publication, debuted as number one on the New York Times bestseller list, was chosen by Good Morning America as its book of the season, The Vanishing Half, is published by Riverhead. It's the story of twin sisters who become separated by many miles and just as many lies. Now, part of what you've done here is establish that story can be told by lying about your characters and watching them in the performance of their lies. At one point in this book, Kennedy is on stage doing her musical numbers, and her mother, who's been in attendance, has to run out. The mother has been living the life of a white woman and has raised her daughter as a white child. She sees the daughter on stage performing. She has not been to any of the performances, but she has to leave. I think that what she sees hurts her terribly. Yeah, I, I became really interested in the idea of performance and the ways in which the characters in this novel are all constantly performing various roles, um, whether they're performing race or class. And then you also have these moments of kind of temporary performance. So you have uh, Barry, the drag queen that you mentioned earlier, who um, is performing gender in a way that is creative and playful um, and temporary. And you also have Kennedy, who is an aspiring theater actress um, and is on stage performing. So I think for me, I, I really wanted to think about what it means when the performance starts to uh, go on so long that it, it starts to feel real. And I think that that's what happens with Stella, where she begins this, this transformation where she claims herself as white. In the very beginning, she feels very conscious of the fact that she is performing whiteness. But as the years go by, she kind of slips deeper into that role, and that begins to feel realer than anything else in her life. Quite a few of these characters find themselves in situations where they have grown bored, indifferent, to life. Some of the characters are scolded for being uppity, but they are by no means as unusual as the characters who have become bored with life. Yeah, I think that's I think Stella is certainly a character who 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 is bored with her life in different in different periods. Um, and I, that's one of the things that I found really interesting about her is that she really is mm -hmm. somebody who has a lot of aspirations. She, from when she's young, she wants to go to college, even though she doesn't know how her family is going to be able to afford it. Um, she always has these kind of ambitions for her life that are, that are often shortchanged because of the circumstances of her, of her being black and female at the, at the time in which she's growing up. But she has these aspirations, and I loved kind of meeting her in her new life as this sort of bored white housewife who is, you know, has the life that she thought she wanted, where she's married somebody who's got some money, and she has a daughter, and they live in a beautiful house, but still feels so bored with her life because she hasn't been able to really exercise her brain in the way that she's wanted to. She's lonely. She doesn't have a community. 
So I wanted to think about these characters. I think there's lots of ambitious characters in this book. Um, Jude wants to be a doctor. Kennedy wants to be an actor. Reese wants to be a photographer. Um, there are lots of people who are chasing their passions in these in these different ways. And I liked contrasting that with Stella, who, when we meet, uh, realizes that sometimes the things that you think that you want are not actually the things that will make you happy. We watch Stella give her wedding ring, a diamond ring, to someone who will be able to sell it and afford to live a life. She comes home, liar that she is, and claims that she must have left the ring at school. But we watch with horrified fascination as her husband brings her an emerald necklace, another ring, another ring, more and more gifts that are on no level satisfying to her. She has lived her life in a way that her dreams do not lead her to her satisfactions. It's in a certain way a Stepford wife kind of life, and it is possibly the saddest life in the book. Did you ever want to rescue her? <laughs> I mean, I agree with you. I think that there's something, you know, I think when you're when you're thinking about desire and stories, there are lots of different outcomes. You know, you have the character who wants something and they get what they want, and that's supposed to be the happy ending. A character who wants something and they don't get what they want, and that's supposed to be tragic. But for me, the real sad thing is somebody who gets what they want and it doesn't make them happy. <laughs> I think that that is actually the most tragic ending of all. And it's, I think, a lot more interesting than those other two options. So I, I loved the idea of Stella, again, getting all of these material things, having this sense of security and safety. Um, in a sense, she has this kind of physical and economic security and safety, but she's constantly running. She's constantly feeling hunted and haunted and afraid that her past is going to catch up to her. Um, so there really isn't a sense of security in that, you know, she doesn't actually ever get to really feel safe um, because she's always running, even though she has, you know, presumably escaped to this to the safety. What I loved about this novel, The Vanishing Half, is that Britt Bennett, the author, really has ideas about life and she expresses them vibrantly and passionately through her characters. It's a three-generational novel. As you know, often those feel old-fashioned. But because The Vanishing Half takes place among people who are altering their lives, their sexuality, their race, there is nothing old-fashioned about this book. It's really lively and a lot of fun to read. Thank you, Britt, for being with me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I've been talking with Britt Bennett, author of The Vanishing Half, published by Riverhead Books. I want to tell my listeners that due to the pandemic, we taped remotely, so you may hear unusual sounds. You can visit kcrw.com slash bookworm for a podcast of today's show, also available at all podcast services and on demand with KCRW smartphone apps. If you haven't already, please become a KCRW member. 
Special thanks to Bookworm Show collaborators Alan Howard and Sean Sullivan and engineer P.J. Shahamet. I'm Michael Silverblatt. Join me again next time on Bookworm. I am a bookworm, he is a bookworm, she is a bookworm, we are all bookworms. Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. This program is produced in the studios of KCRW Santa Monica. You can access archives of all Bookworm programs and podcasts, the most recent ones, at kcrw.com bookworm. The Bookworm themes were composed and performed by Ron and Russell Mayle of Sparks. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen.